You are listening to Killer. This is case number 17, The Golden State Killer, Part 4, The East Area Rapist. Lock your doors, bolt your windows, and turn off the lights. We're about to begin. January 18, 1977, Sacramento, California. Around 11 p.m., a victim was awakened by a beaming flashlight shooting right into her eyes. There was a man standing there, wearing a dark mask, light jacket, polyester pants, and black leather gloves. The usual routine happened here. This time, the victim was five months pregnant and alerted the ear, but he did not care. He proceeded to rape her, rummage through her home, and rape her again. The victim was threatened to be killed many times over. The ear was in the home for roughly four hours, but it finally ended when the victim heard the car in her garage start and pull out. She freed herself and a neighbor phoned the police. The ear was immediately suspected and had bro- broken in through a hole in a backyard window, which he created, reached in, and removed a wooden dowel that was keeping the window secure. He cut up electrical cord that he used to bind her. He also cut the phone wires. This victim was a little different in the fact that she was the first Asian female to be assaulted rather than his usual white female. Another strange thing he did in the home was take knives from the kitchen and bring them into the living room and broke the blades off of some of them. He stole some money, jewelry, and a digital clock. As for the victim's car, it was found a few blocks away at an apartment complex on Great Falls Way, locked, and the keys were missing. Police did find a tennis shoe print near it. This is the first time that the ear struck in the jurisdiction of Sacramento. What else is interesting to note is that the area where the ear struck this time was situated near a corridor that contained power lines overhead, which means there was a natural path that he could use to silently prowl. There was also a cultivated area where he could use it to pretend to be a jogger, bike rider, or walker and blend right into the developments. Several witnesses reported prowling activity in the weeks leading up to the attack. On January 12th, a woman reported a prowler in her front yard. The next evening, she noticed her light bulb had been removed from her front porch light. The night of the attack, a neighbor reported a prowler walked up to her home and was near her side yard as she peered at him through the garage. When he saw her, he took off and hopped a fence. January 24th, 1977, Citrus Heights. Sometime between 1 and 3 a.m., a woman was awakened from sleep by a man grabbing her shoulders and trying to flip her over. The woman's initial instinct was to fight back until she heard through clenched teeth a warning. If she screamed again, she would be killed. While also feeling a sharp, pointed object, pressing against her neck. She stopped resisting. The intruder then flipped her over onto her stomach and began the binding process like the others. The one thing the victim recalled was that his body odor was so horrendous. Again, he was described as having a very small penis, which was lotioned. He assaulted the victim twice and did something a bit new for him. He unbound her and rebound her again using different ties, possibly to keep the other bindings as a keepsake. He attempted to mislead the victim by calling her by name, but again, she did not believe that he actually knew her. Investigators arrived on the scene and found a block of cheese sitting atop the breakfast bar. It had a bite taken from it, alongside a couple empty Coors beer cans. The bloodhound was called in again, and the dog continued to track the suspect, as in other cases. The dog followed the trail down a few blocks, and it ended at a curb on Guinevere. Investigators discovered waffle stomper shoe prints around the neighbor's yard, but not in the victim's yard. This is the third time they found these type of impressions near an ear attack. Three major suspects that Richard Shelby had interest in, including Art Pinkton, were all accounted for that evening. As is typical in these cases, several folks reported prowler activity in the days leading up to the attack. One neighbor reported her dogs, which were kept outside, started going ballistic around 12.30 a.m., but she did not investigate or call police. On January 29th, a woman looked out her back window and noticed a man standing in the backyard of a neighboring home that was for sale. She noticed he was a white male, 5 foot 8 inches tall. When she reached for the phone, he took off running. On January 31st, between 2 and 2.30 a.m., a woman pulled up to a stop sign at Oak Crest and Dewey Drive. She noticed a man in a ski mask crawling on his hands and knees towards a front door of a home. She looked to her right, then back, only to see the person knocking hard on her driver's door window. She immediately sped away, 
turning right on Dewey, but then she slowed down and looked in her rearview mirror and noticed he was pulling a bike from the bushes. He hopped on the bike and began to pedal in the direction of her car. At that point, she was scared enough to take off. As the events of the year continued to unfold, the Sacramento Police Department and the Sacramento County Sheriff's Department, which is where Detectives Shelby and Daly worked, began working together. As soon as the Sacramento PD received a call, they would inform Shelby and vice versa, creating a pseudo-task force. One night, this almost paid off for Shelby and company, as there was a reported prowler on a cul-de-sac. Shelby was out patrolling and drove down there off of American River Drive. He took a side street to the south and ended at an L-shaped intersection. He had a choice, turn left or drive right into a weedy field. The house that spotted the prowler was up against the weedy field. Shelby took the turn on the road to the left rather than the field. Later that evening, a bloodhound came out to track the scent and led him straight through the weedy field to the curb where Shelby chose to turn the opposite direction. Suddenly, Shelby recalled something that would have haunt him for a while. There was a green American Chevy Coupe that had been parked there. When Shelby arrived, the suspect had already fled and SPD officers were at the scene, waiting for him to arrive as well as the tracking dog. The car was still there, but by the time the tracking dog had arrived, the car had left. If it was truly the ear's car, it would mean that he did not always leave the area when spotted or even after police arrived. In early 1977, Detective Shelby found himself sitting with two investigators from Visalia, Sergeant John Vaughn and Special Agent Bill McGowan. If you recall, McGowan was the officer shot at by the VR. The pair were there to meet with Shelby and discuss possible connections between the VR and the ear. Visalia was about a four-hour drive to the south of Sacramento. The Visalia investigators described him as 5'9 to 5'11 and weighing between 150 to 175 pounds. Rather than a muscular build, he was described as pear-shaped. They found him to be older than a high school age with mean-looking eyes. His clothing was described as a ski mask, dark green pants, and a dark-colored shirt. His voice was high-pitched. We've now covered attacks 11, 12, and then, you know, we start digging in here where... The detectives from Visalia are starting to wonder, hey, do we have this ear and VR link going on? Like, let's start talking through this together. And at the time, you know, not very many people believed this link to be true. I mean, now we know it is true. But before then, they didn't have any way to know for sure. And there's also even possibly one other spree of crimes that there's another moniker for, which is the Cordova cat burglar, um, those also might be connected. And so, you know, this guy, he he is all over the place in this area, just causing all sorts of chaos. I mean, he's got three monikers just between the, the, these different areas and his different MOs. So he's shown a propensity to shift his MO over time and do different things. You know, it, it's fascinating to see this and, you know, he also struck his first non-white female victim in attack number 11. And then, you know, he continues on and he's continuing to carry out the same MO. And the one thing that they pointed out was he took the bindings with him this last time, possibly as a souvenir. And what do you make of that? No, it's, it's interesting that he took the bindings with him that he actually used for sure. I mean, I think up to this point, we've talked about him taking, you know, some insignificant items like different types of jewelry and rings and things like that but actually some of the devices that he used to carry out the attack is you know it's definitely an interesting point to make yeah and you know it's just like this slow escalation you know he keeps doing these things i mean 11 and 12 attacks already uh, that's a lot i mean in the time period that we were we started from to now you know i mean I think he started officially as the ear, and if I'm recalling correctly, it was June of 76. And so you're just, you know, like not even a full year later, and you've got 12 attacks. That's pretty crazy. I was going to say, what did he make of Bill Gowan finally getting, you know, caught up to, to the guys that were in this other area of Sacramento to talk about the attacks and try to compare notes? It seems like they were able to surprisingly this time able to get together fairly quick to compare notes because we've talked about how different jurisdictions have a hard time comparing and sharing information that they have and have Visalia being four hour drive south of Sacramento pretty fair amount of distance between the two areas 
That is, it is a big uh, difference. And what's fascinating is that they had the foresight to try and connect these crimes back then because, you know, like you were saying, a lot of these jurisdictions are very siloed off from each other. They could be right next to each other and not be sharing information. So, you know, one county to the next could have totally different information and not be sharing it, even though it's the exact same MO in just different counties. And you'll see that throughout the series that will happen. You know, attacks happen and law enforcement's not sharing this stuff with each other. And I've been reading through uh, Hunting a Psychopath, the book written by Detective Shelby, and he basically says that all the time. He's like, you know, these guys, at first it was a rotational program as to who was even getting assigned these cases within their own department, let alone going outside of their department to another department and trying to get that information all, you know, bubbled up and together. And so that everybody was informed, like they had to form their own pseudo task force with the police department because no one else was going to do it. And everyone's so territorial. But the bottom line is like, you've got this dude who's attacked 12 times already in such a short amount of time. And he does it with, and the thing is like, you you could say, you know, he attacked 12 times in six months. So that's two times a month, roughly, which is a lot. But the way he's doing it is so planned out, so precise in almost every instance, and he's prepared. So that means that this guy is just boom, next one, boom, next one. He's already he's already got his next three houses probably planned or rough idea while he's striking the current house. So it's like if you don't stop him now, you know there's two or three more coming that he's already staked out. So, you know, these guys need to get on top of their shit and get things going. Like, let's go. Let's stop this from happening before it really escalates even further. Yeah, right. I'm surprised there wasn't a, with it being up to attack 12 already, there wasn't more of a sting type operation in place where, you know, I, I obviously you can't have a police officer setting at every street corner in the city, but you, you draw a pattern on the map of where the attacks are happening and try to try to home in on where this next one might happen. Like you said, there's probably two to three already lined up. So, you know, try to make some educated guesses as the facts that you have now and what could happen you know, over the next few weeks. Yeah. And, you know, he, you know, he's clearly prepared for all of these things and police just have no idea how to catch him. And the one fascinating thing out of Shelby's book that I've picked up so far is they, you know, they obviously like it's, we're so far removed from this. And at the time of it happening, they kept a lot of the information close to the vest because they didn't want to give any, you know, tips to the person who was committing the crimes of what they were doing, what they were thinking, the evidence they were collecting and those kinds of things. So they're pretty careful about what they were giving to the media. But what you come to find out is there are so many people that they suspect of doing this. And then they just barely turn out, you know, to not have anything to do with it. Like that art Pinkton. And they mentioned him a lot. The night of one of these attacks, he was at home. So it's like, all right, well, it's not him. You know, that one neighbor that they brought over and the dog sniffed him and nothing just kept going move on you know and it's like a series of those events happen but then there's also a series of events where shelby will say he's driving around he spots a suspicious person he turns around to go find him and he's gone and so you know it's just it constantly this is going on like it's almost like every weekend he's like running into someone he thinks could be the east area rapist and he's still not able to track him down yeah and i kind of feel bad for the lady but uh the ear tapped on her window and then she drove, thank God she just drove off quickly and wasn't like, Oh, who's this? <laughs> Roll the window down. But I think he had a mask on too. So you're not going to open up. You're not going to roll your window down. Somebody's got a mask on, right? Yeah. Let's touch on that a little bit. Yeah. You're, you're driving down the street late or early in the morning, I should say. And you look over and see somebody crawling up to a house on all fours wearing a ski mask <laughs> and, and you're just sitting there. I'm getting the hell out of there fast. I mean, I might drive to the police station or something, to go report it, but I'm not hanging out. And then the guy runs up to you and starts beating on your window. Yeah, no joke. Uh, I don't know though if it was in today's time, somebody sees that behind them in their mirror, they're probably likely going to get out of their car and start Facebook Live up and watch this guy crawling across the street with their phone, and then take off when he starts running at them or riding his bike towards them. Well, that's what's so crazy about this time period is that there's no way for for any of this stuff to be videotaped like it is today you know like video cameras are everywhere and so it's a lot harder for these people to get away with this stuff for a long period of time i mean if he was the cordova cat burglar the visalia ransacker and now you're up to attack 12 of the east area rapist 
and he's not been caught yet. I mean, he burglarized over 100 homes. Don't forget that. That's a huge amount of homes in the short period of time that he was doing that. And so if he did that and 12 rapes on top of any failed attempts and all the prowler activity where he gets seen and people notice him in their yard and this and that, like today, like I said, I've got cameras around my whole house. Like I will see you. You'll be on video. It gets uploaded to the cloud too. So that video is there. Like you're not getting rid of it. Once it captures it, it's up, you know? Right. And so you you can't take that down now. And, uh, you know, back then you had free reign to do whatever the hell you wanted. I mean, there are very few cameras around like that. Yeah. It is kind of funny that he was trying to chase her down on her, on his bike though. I mean, what's he, <laughs> seriously, what's he going to do? Was Lance Armstrong catch up to her ass in a car? Not going to happen. No, but I mean, it must've been pretty intimidating. I mean, imagine the hour of the day that it was, you know, and then it's pitch black out. This dude in a ski mask is chasing you on his bike. Who knows? He could have a gun. You don't know. You know, he probably does. And you're like, what the hell? <laughs> I mean, I would, my heart would be pounding so hard. I might pass out. Yeah. That would freak me out so bad. I'd be out of there so fast. I'm such a wimp though. So I'd be out. I'm not fighting. I'm leaving. Peace. Yeah. I definitely wouldn't have stopped to see where he was at. <laughs> I would have hit the road and at least got a couple neighborhoods away before I stopped to try to call somebody. Yeah. Do you do one of those things where you like don't drive to your house because you don't want them to follow you there? So you drive around like this crazy route for like a half an hour until you end up at your home. (laughs) Hope he wasn't able to chase you on his bicycle the whole way. Yeah. Oh, I definitely would do that. I wouldn't take a direct route right to my house, (laughs) especially if he was able to keep any kind of close distance or proximity. I, I doubt it on a bike, but you never know. Do the California stop. Yeah. (laughs) well for me if i know that he didn't have a gun it would have been like i mess with my kids all the time where they're coming to get in the car and i'll creep forward and then he'll come a little closer (laughs) and then i'll go quick slam on the brakes i mean i don't do that with any intent to to harm them other than to mess with them but some guy on a bike and a ski mask i probably would have given him a serious brake check hoping he slammed into the back of the car yeah that's like uh they do that on tommy boy yeah yep Tommy tries to go get in the car and Richard keeps driving it just like a little bit more and a little bit more. And then he's out there looking all, all embarrassing and he's trying to get in the door and he can't open well, it. Well, that was because he was hiding behind the car to uh, take a pee. Yeah, and then Richard drove away that's and right. then he pissed all over himself. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> all right. On to attack number 13. February 7th, 1977 in the city of Carmichael. Early that morning, a 31-year-old woman was helping her husband get ready for work. Just before leaving for work, he said that he felt something was wrong, and he called out to his wife on his way out the door to be sure that all the doors were locked and all the windows were locked. There was a strange van in a parking lot located behind their home. A few minutes after her husband left, she had the strange feeling of someone standing behind her. As she looked over her shoulder, she noticed a man wearing a green, tight-fitting ski mask. After she had checked all the doors unlocked, she assumed the back sliding glass door was locked. However, it was not. The intruder had a gun in one hand and a knife in the other and ordered her to sit down in a chair, stating that all he wanted was her money and he didn't want to hurt her. He began tying her up while she sat in the dining room chair. As he grabbed her hands and pulled them behind her back, he prepared to tie them together using his pre-made bindings. He hissed at her as she began to vocally voice her frustration. Shut up or I'll kill you. She complied with the man and he ordered her to her bedroom. She said no. He responded by holding the gun to her head and said all he wanted was to tie her to the bed. As they were on their way to the bedroom, she noticed he had shut the door of her six-year-old daughter's bedroom. After she was placed on her bed, he began to bind her feet. However, she started to resist, but that was thwarted. Then he raised a knife to her neck. However, she would only take a slight pause in fighting back as she was strategically planning her next move. She began to move off the bed while yelling for her dog to get the man, and also yelling at him to get the fuck out of here. He tried to subdue her by beating her over the head. At this point, she was lying on her back on the bed, and he was on top of her, telling her to shut up. As they struggled, she could feel the gun in his right pocket, and she was able to get the gun out. She had her thumb on the trigger and desperately wanted to pull it, but she wasn't certain which way she was facing, due to her blindfold. She intelligently knew that she may fire a shot into her daughter's bedroom, and restrained from pulling the trigger. After he finally regained control of the weapon, he angrily stabbed next to her head on the bed repeatedly. He threatened the victim, stating, Shut up or I'll kill your daughter. I'll cut her ear off and bring it to you. Next, he ran his knife along her face and told her, If you move, I'll kill you. I'll cut up your face. 
It was then silent for a brief period. Believing he left the room, she attempted to free herself, but he was back and felt his hands grab her chest and push her down. If you move, I'll cut off your toes, one for each time you move. He continued on with his usual tactics and proceeded to sodomize and rape her. The six-year-old had suddenly interrupted him. He told her, be quiet or I'll cut you up. He binded the daughter with cords cut from something in the home and laid her next to her mother. The daughter began throwing a fit rather than complying with his orders to be quiet. At that point, the mother joined in and making as much noise as possible. The suspect quickly ripped the phone cords from the wall and was gone moments later. The suspect was defined as a white male, 19 to 23 years old, 5 foot 11, weighing 185 pounds. His legs were pale and hairy. Again, he was described as having a tiny penis. His clothing was described as white jockey shorts, under black pants, and dark blue waist-length nylon jacket. His gloves were cheap black leather, and his mask was dark green. He wore red, white, and blue tennis shoes, a shoe that at that time was more popular amongst teens than adults. His gun was described as thin, with a long barrel and dark wooden grips. The knife was five inches long and dull. Again, after the fact, neighbors divulged a lot of prowler activity and hang-up calls leading up to the attacks. On February 6th, the day before, a young man, mid-twenties, was observed by one of the neighbors while she was working in her yard. He gave her the creeps. He was described as short hair, blondish, about 5 foot 10 inches tall, wearing some kind of jogging outfit. Every time she looked at him, he looked away and feigned he was looking at the trees or just the sky. The morning of the attack, a teacher at Kelly School Elementary saw a man, mid-twenties, run through the park area. The time was 7.30 a.m., the time Ear left off his attack. He was wearing a blue jacket. He was 5 foot 8 to 10 inches tall, medium build. The other interesting piece of information here is that during the struggle, blood was found, which is assumed to be the ears due to the fact that the victim's blood type was B, and this was type A. The investigators suspect he cut himself with his knife during the struggle. A great piece of information was also gleaned from the blood. The ear was a non-secretor, which means that the suspect does not secrete the ABO blood antigens into body fluids. Roughly 20% of the population has this feature in their genes, which would later be used to help eliminate suspects. If you recall the band-aid left during an earlier assault, it matched the blood type here, type A positive. So the big takeaway here in this attack is that we get his blood from this one. And so they do the typing and they find out, you know, that he's a non-secretor. Well, they start eliminating suspects throughout the investigation with this method, but they didn't know at the time that secretor status can change. So you could be both a secretor and a non-secretor. So every suspect they eliminated with this method is now back on the table to figure out if they really were, you know, a true suspect or not. So the only ones that they could truly rule out were the ones that were not A-positive. Yeah, exactly. So if you had anything blood type B, they could, you know, eliminate you, but they couldn't if you had a type A. And, you know, again, they couldn't determine secretor status. Well, they they did determine secretor status, but it doesn't matter. Looking back at it now, at the time, that you know, they would make people chew on gauze and stuff like that and then take their secretor status and eliminate them based on that. So that was kind of something interesting. The other thing that uh, I, that's really interesting about this attack is where was this guy when the husband was home? Because the wife was in the kitchen and he came up on her in the kitchen. And if you look at the layout of the home, it's just a ranch style home. And they say the intruder enters through the sliding patio door. So if you're looking at a map of the home, on the north end is the backyard. On the south end... That would be, you know, the front yard and the, the garage and the living room is over on that side and everything. And so he comes in from the north end, right? But when he comes in through that sliding glass door, he en- that would enter into the family room. And right next to the family room, there's a doorway to the dining room, which connects to the kitchen. And then the kitchen has like a bar that looks back out into the, to the family room slash living room area. So if he comes in through that way, she could see him through that bar. You know, he would he would have to walk past the bar or he would have to sneak into the dining room. But, you know, okay, so you're saying, all right, so what's the big deal? Well, they say that he went and closed the daughter's door before uh, attacking the mother. So he would have had to have passed the kitchen where she was. And the only way he could have done this is to crawl on the floor to get underneath the kitchen, uh, the kitchen bar, so that she couldn't see him and walk down the hall. 
Now, what I was thinking about while reading this out is the father says, something doesn't feel right to me before leaving the house. And he tells her, make sure you lock all the doors. I think he was in the house before. Yeah, but like you said, where in the hell would he have hidden? Because I'm looking at the layout, too, that you just described. And yeah, he could have he could have been very careful to get past the entrance away into the dining room, got on his hands and knees past the kitchen. But the way the house is laid out, he would have had to have passed by every single room in that house to get into that hallway corridor to lock the daughter's bedroom. So how would the father have not seen him? Yeah, and that's what's interesting. So think of the home as, you know, essentially two rectangles. So one taller rectangle and then another smaller rectangle connected to it. And the connection point would be a hallway. And on the right-hand side is where he comes in, and that's where the dining room, the kitchen, the living room is. But he would have to go all the way around all of that and then go down the hallway. The master bedroom's actually at the top near where he would have come in through the sliding glass door, except it's on the other side, and the only way to get over there is by using the hallway to get there. It's not really connected to anything else. So if investigators are correct and then he came in through the sliding glass door... You know, he would have already have had to have been in this house. There's no way because, you know, again, they're getting ready for work. Husband's walking around, I'm sure, going back and forth between his bedroom. The only other thing is if he got in there early enough and he was hiding in maybe like the kid's room because he ends up shutting her door. Mm-hmm. It could have been. I mean, he could have been in a closet. I don't know. I mean, but the the tough part about that is his MO is usually just to come in and then like bum rush you in a room. Like... Most people are in their room sleeping at the time that he comes in. He comes in, just runs down the hallway full speed and gets in your room. And then he's on you in two seconds, you know, binding you up. So that would be strange a little bit in this case. But I can't think of any other way that he would have gotten into the home unless he came in after the husband left, threw the slider, crawled across the floor, didn't make any noise, got up, walked all the way to the back of the hallway, shuts the the girl's door, comes all the way back down the hallway... That seems awfully risky to try and do all of that while she's in the kitchen, just based on the layout of this house. The only other way would have been if they had it wrong. He didn't use the slider and came through the master bedroom window or something like that. I mean, he has access directly to the bedrooms then. They say she locked all the windows and doors, supposedly. So I don't know. I I, I just thought that was an interesting thing that happens here. And it's, um, you know, it's one of those things where anything's possible, but that'd be really damn hard for him to get in there and be very secretive. Uh, I mean, I don't know if she's like cooking, making a bunch of noise or something, who knows? Maybe, maybe it's not so crazy, but just looking at the floor plan, it looks obviously, you know, it it looks really hard for him to (laughs) pull that off. Yeah. And he's not exactly the calmest collected person. If he is to be caught in the act or this, you know, the attack is happening. So I don't see him as the kind of guy that's going to be just, shutting himself in a closet and hanging out until the coast is clear to proceed with his attack. I have a feeling he's he would be way too nervous, way too, you know, he wouldn't be able to, con- maybe not, maybe I'm completely wrong, but the couple times that he has had close calls, he like completely flips out and it's fight or flee, right? Yeah, I agree with you because he's all about control. And if you're just hiding in a closet, you're not controlling anything. You're actually at the mercy of what's going on in the home. You're not dictating to the environment like what's going on. The environment's dictating to you because you're waiting and you're thinking about like, okay, well, when she walks by, then I'm going to jump out or whatever. And then who knows what if the husband comes back in and, you know, you're in a vulnerable position, kind of. Um, I mean, yeah, if you have a gun or something, obviously you have the upper hand no matter what. But, you know, he would have to come out and then like, well, okay, well, what if someone's behind him or next to him? You know, like, and he's in a weird position where, you know, suddenly the victims can you know, take him on, right? He would rather bum rush you in plain sight and know where everyone's at. So I thought that was kind of interesting. Um, Maybe he did enter in through a different location or maybe he was in the home. Maybe nobody noticed and he was in the home earlier and had shut the door and then left and came back later after the husband had got up for work. That could be. And not to mention, I, I, I find it hard to believe that he was already hiding in the house waiting for his opportunity to, to pounce. I mean, not not to mention, with so many accounts that we've heard from these witnesses or these victims of these attacks, is the guy obviously has never been introduced to speed sticks. So I don't think that the stinky motherfucker is going to be in a closet waiting to pounce out. <laughs> Somebody's going to say, what is that? You know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I joke about that, but somebody 
a smaller ranch style house like that. And if you have somebody with just absolutely horrendous body odor, you're going to smell it. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And, and especially if it's not someone from the house, you know, like you get used to the smell of the people that you live with. I mean, I know it sounds kind of gross, but you do like, you know, if I smell, my wife knows what I smell like. She knows it's me. Like, she's like, yeah, you smell like garbage, you know, but this garbage smells this certain way and that's you. But if it's someone else, she's like, well, no, that's weird. You know what I mean? Like you just get used to it. Well, I, I agree with you to a certain point because my wife and I have been married almost 18 years and just this past weekend, our dog busted ass in the kitchen and she blamed me. So she obviously hasn't got my scent profile after 18 years. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think that's more of a function of your diet than your, (laughs) (laughs) but it was a dog. It wasn't me. So, I mean, well, I mean, you do eat all that Chinese food, so, you know, and you know what the rumor is, right? (laughs) Yes, I do. I don't know if I want to go back there. <laughs> Anyways, I don't so, want to derail us. I'm just throwing that out there. I I, I agree no, to I disagree <laughs> a little bit there. Yeah. Well, it's in the family, right? <laughs> That's right. The dog is just as much of the family as the rest of us. That's right. I don't know what it says about you that your <laughs> your smell is that of a dog, but <laughs> that's pretty rough. Oh, well. Craig's up there just throwing back kibbles and bits. Yeah. <laughs> Pour some more milk on it. It'll taste all right. I always like the softer stuff. It looks more like hamburger meat, but it's actually dog food. That stuff makes my stomach turn every time. Like, if you open a can of wet animal food, it just is so gross smelling. I don't even, I can't do it. Well, the well, the reason it smells so bad is we touched about that. Just I don't want to get too far in the weeds on this, but we touched a little bit about that on the uh, the Willie Picton case, the uh, pork chop rob, and those rendering factories are used to make dog food. So the stuff that they're putting in those cans, well, albeit it's still a meat product, is not desirable whatsoever. So if you've ever eaten dog food as a kid, which I know lots of kids that have, by choice or just by a dare or something stupid. It's hard to say what you ate. Oh, <laughs> uh, well, you may have eaten uh, hookers, right? No may way. have eaten a Canadian <laughs> hooker at some point if you've eaten dog food. <sighs> so gross. We'll move on to the next attack. This one is interesting. It is um, a failed attack at Ripon Court, February 16th, 1977, in the city of Sacramento. The year had developed a fairly obvious MO at this point. Police had noted that he tended to strike homes on or one row over from a canal, park, school, or levee, leaving him an easy escape route. In the area of Ripon Court, which was near a huge grassy park lined by trees and shadows, a perfect place for a lurking ear, Rod Miller came into his home from the garage door around 10 p.m., where he lived with his family, a sister, mother, and father. Just after entering his home, he and his father heard something in their backyard. Someone had run into their barbecue. They flipped the light on, revealing someone in the dark corner of their backyard. Ray, Rod's father, opened the door. The stranger bolted to the front yard. Rod gave chase to the man. Ray followed closely behind him. The suspect darted across the street, very quick and agile, and he was now at the house opposite of the Millers. He hopped over that home's side fence. Rod, in pursuit, jumped up to the fence and was about to scale it. His momentum was carrying him forward when he heard a gun cock. He had no recourse. He was in full pursuit and halfway over the fence when he was shot in the stomach. He fell back into his father's arms. Another shot was fired. Rod yanked his son in the front of the neighbor's garage door to avoid more bullets. Neighbors heard Rod screaming and decided to phone police. Rod Miller would survive the attack. In the aftermath of the shooting, the Sacramento Bee, the local newspaper, as well as Lieutenant Shelby, thought that this was the work of the ear. The location fit his MO perfectly. The other thing to note that the ear had not struck again in February after this incident. That leaves us with one attack in February, and some of his recent pacing seemed to be around two per month. The gun, a 9mm, which fit the description of some other ear attacks. A description of the suspect was derived by Sacramento police. The suspect was a young man with a long face and eyes with an almost dead expression. He had thin lips and long hair down past his ears. He was described as being about 20 years old, 5'10", 170 pounds, wearing a blue watch cap, blue sweatshirt, dark pants, and white tennis shoes. 
Later speculation would be that the ear was there and he was prowling for his next victim, and the family had a daughter who may have been the potential target of the ear. None of this is or can be, can be officially linked to the ear, but based on the ongoings at the time, this is likely the work of the ear. What do you make of him shooting this kid? It just goes to show that, you know, some of the things that you've said previously are true. He's going to, anytime he's going to be chased or somebody's in pursuit, he's going to shoot him. We had that close call yeah. last week where the one detective was fairly certain he saw him on the street. And we, I made a comment, you know, that the police officer may have had the upper hand in that situation because he caught him off guard just walking down the street. But, you know, he probably would have turned and shot at him had that really have been him. Yeah, and that's the thing. Um, you know, when you really like go back and analyze, you know, these pursuits and these things that have happened. So if this is the ear, which most likely it is, but it's not a hundred percent accounted for, right? You can't confirm this to, to be certain, but it sounds like him. Um, he will obviously shoot you. He's not afraid to do it. But the other part is he's got the upper hand in the fact that you don't know that he's the ear for sure. Now, if you caught him probably wearing the ski mask and the whole bit, you know, kind of in the act or whatever, like, then you know, right? You're more likely as a police officer to take him down. But if you're walking up on a guy like Shelby did on the street, you know, like, like he was saying, like, if he was going to approach him on the street, you don't know that he's the ear. So you're kind of coming at him cautiously, like, hey, um, you know, I need to find out that you're the ear. Well, he would turn around and shoot you in two seconds. So you are going to always be at a disadvantage in that case because, He's, he knows he is, and he's going to defend himself and take off. You don't know he is, so you're not going to be able to shoot him right away. You know what I mean? And so he's always going to have that quick trigger ability where he can flip around and shoot at you before you can even do anything about it because, you know, obviously he knows who he is and you don't. So that in and of itself is an advantage. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's good that the kid survived the attack for sure, and they got a pretty good description of the suspect since he wasn't wearing a mask. And, you know, yep. thin lips, round face, dead expression in the eyes. They were pretty detailed with that description. Yeah, I believe they do make a composite out of that description, too. Um, but I'm not 100% certain if that's one of them that gets circulated. Attack number 14, March 8th, 1977, in the city of Sacramento. It was around 3 a.m. when a voice said to the single 37-year-old woman, Do you feel this butcher knife? If you scream or do anything, I'll kill you. All I want is your money. I won't hurt you if you don't scream. This attack continued as usual. However, he did fondle her breasts in this attack, which was not common for him to do. He also removed his gloves during the sexual assault. He also squeezed her thumb during this attack. There was blood on her thumb, but not hers. Nothing materialized out of the blood analysis. As usual, there were signs of prowling in the neighborhood. Multiple hang-up calls a week or so before the attack. The calls stopped. Two or three doors to the west of the victim's home on the corner of Thornwood Drive and Northwood Drive. There's a 20-foot tall tree covered with foliage. Beneath the tree, investigators found tennis shoe prints with wavy zigzag patterns. They also uncovered cigarette butts with light-colored filter tips that had either one or two stripes on them scattered beneath the tree. There were so many butts scattered about the investigators felt that whoever was there had stayed over some time or possibly several days, and they were coming and going. The house in which the yard belonged had a row of hedges bordering the wall that faced the driveway and wrapped around the length of the back of the house. The neighbor that lived there had told investigators who had come knocking at his door that they had discovered a bag inside of one of the hedges. A few weeks earlier, someone in his family found a cloth bag hidden inside the hedge, and inside the bag was a ski mask, gloves, and a flashlight. The family phoned the Sacramento PD and informed them of what they had found. The person on the other end had instructed the family to throw it away. The family discarded the mask and gloves, however, they kept the flashlight. It was silver-colored and used one D-cell battery. It was small enough to hide in your hand and had a diameter of 1 to 2 inches. Other information investigators collected was that they saw a white male, five foot nine, in his 20s park an old yellow pickup by the curb near the neighbor's house. Each time they saw the driver, he headed to the back of their neighbor's yard where they assumed he was just going to visit. This car is clearly not the same description of the dark-colored American muscle car we've heard of of about to this point. Another report of that same car was spotted by a 15-year-old. Investigators tried to track down this truck for a long time, and with the help of the BMV, they came up with nothing. After speaking to the usual types in the area, the paperboy mentioned that his own home had a screen removed from a rear window. What's interesting here is clearly the discovery of the stash, the mask, the flashlight, and the gloves. So it would appear that Investigators would get a little bit of a glimpse into the ear's 
tendencies to go hide things and keep them near the scene of the crime before the crime would happen. And, you know, <laughs> why would the Sacramento Police Department tell you to throw away the masking gloves and the flashlight? Like, who thinks that's a good idea? Knowing, I mean, you've had 14 attacks and a potential shooting. And you, and you find a bag of obvious items that could be used in a criminal attack. Oh, just throw it away. And it's not like SAC PD wasn't involved in this, you know, up to this point. Like, this isn't new for them. This has been going on. Yeah, I, I don't know what to make of that. That makes absolutely zero sense to me whatsoever. Oh, whoever said that should be should have been fired right then. Like, that is so stupid on so many levels. Like, yeah, you're probably not going to get anything from that, but that's evidence. Like, you put that into the into the safe for later, you know? Yeah, absolutely. The only other thing that stood out to me there was they, they said that wherever he was standing or casing the place out, there was a lot of cigarette butts on the ground. I don't know that we've... Have we determined that he's a smoker to this point? None of his witness descriptions or anything that has happened to these victims, you know, if somebody smokes that heavily, that's something distinct that sticks out. Maybe that's part of his BO. I don't know. Hard to say. And at that time, everyone smoked, you know, it wasn't a uncommon thing. So, you know, maybe he did smoke, but it didn't really mean anything. You know, a lot of these people may have smoked. So it's like, they didn't really notice the smell because they smell like it you know one of those kind of things you go nose blind yeah right something that they're just passive toward yeah um and if i if memory serves i didn't write this down but i believe they took that flashlight into evidence at some point and they tried like stripping it down and finding fingerprints and figuring out who made it but they never nothing ever happened to it and uh so they never were able to really figure out any good info based off of that so you know the frustrating thing here is you're telling someone to throw away evidence and it's, you know, all of the hallmark things of the hysteria rapist. Now, I mean, one aspect of this that, you know, no one really talks about because obviously, you know, the gravity of these attacks and the frequency of them is, but did somebody stage it? You know, people make prank phone calls pretending to be him, you know, and they're fake. There are real ones, but there are people who do pretend it because, you know, why Why not? They're assholes. But did someone go plant this stuff in someone's house just to freak them out? It's very much possible. Not that they're wanting to be a copycat, but just just to be an asshole, <laughs> like you said. Yeah, just you're screwing, you're screwing with your buddy. You know, you just like go, like everyone, you know, maybe, well, you know, everyone's talking about it right now. You know, they're they're all kind of going about their thing and, you know, it's it's spreading around town like crazy. Um, you know, we heard that news clip last week, you know, where they talk about, you know, kind of how everyone starts rushing to buy guns and locks and dogs and all that stuff. So it's well, you know, people are well aware. So say you're in school and, you know, you're, you overhear one of these girls freaked out about the East area rapist. And then you think it's funny and you go put a mask and gloves in her bushes near her house, you know, and and really it was nothing. It was just to screw with her. You know what I mean? (laughs) Like I can totally see teenagers doing that to each other oh yeah i can too and not a cool thing to do but i can see people doing it just a, as a prank like you said crank prank oh, phone yeah. calls prank props whatever yeah i mean i can see that happening as well because you never you know i don't i don't believe that this ever happens again where they see or find any of this kind of stuff again so you know to me either he found out that police were on to him because the other thing, I guess the other part of this would be, and which is probably more likely is that he does do this kind of stuff. He stages his stuff because if police found him driving around town with the gloves and the mask and all that, all that stuff, you know, you're much more likely to get caught and then they can prove who you are. So he may very well hide stuff. So he's not prowling with this stuff in his possession. And that's why when he prowls, people tend to notice his face and can see him a little bit. You know, I, I don't know. I, I really don't know what the motive would be here besides, you know, to hide it because th- these are things that you can easily carry in your coat. You know, like you don't need to, like, it's not like a bunch of stuff you've got to bring with you. You know, he brings bindings with him. He brings a knife. He brings a gun. So why drop the ski mask, gloves, and flashlight off in a bush somewhere? Yeah, I can see both sides of that. But like you said, you, yeah. you something he could easily carry on himself, but maybe he doesn't want in the car. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. Are you more suspicious having your ski mask on you or your knife and 
in your gun. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, if you're carrying those things on you, you're pretty suspicious to begin with. So I don't know if just adding the mask is, I don't know, implicating you or, you know, like, I don't know what his thought process is. It's kind of strange. So I'm not sure about this. I, I'm I'm very on the fence on if this was even his to begin with or if someone was just screwing around. And the thing is, they threw it all away. So was the mask like a mask like his where it was only the eye holes cut out and no mouth? Because that's his M.O., you know, he has the eye holes only, nothing for a nose or mouth or anything like that. So, you know, that would be a dead giveaway. Was it a store-bought mask? Because he tends to, seems seems like he tends to make his own somehow or modify things to be a mask for himself. So a lot of questions there, but now you don't have the answer because the idiot police department told him to throw it away. Yeah, which I think is the is the main point here. Why? Why, <laughs> why would they tell him to throw it away? It's just dumb. Yeah, I mean, on the surface, you think, ah, oh, it's a mask, gloves, whatever. Like, yeah, you should take it as evidence. But then when you start thinking about it, you know, as we are here, you know, I didn't prepare any points for this topic. And as I'm sitting here talking to you, I'm coming up with, you know, three or four different things <laughs> that I could say, hmm, wonder about this. Hmm, wonder about that. And, you know, these are police officers. They're trained for this stuff. They should be asking these questions. So that's just beyond baffling to me that they would tell them to toss this stuff in the trash. Yeah, I completely agree. Attack number 15, March 18th, 1977 in the city of Rancho Cordova. A home on Bennyway received so many crank calls where a person would call but not utter a single word that the mother in the home ended up blowing a whistle into the receiver of the phone twice. The daughter of the home answered a phone call to hear a man on the other end asking if her father was home. He had identified himself as a roofer. She said that her parents were gone for the weekend and hung up the phone. Three more calls would follow that day, but not to the family on Bennyway, rather to the Sacramento Sheriff's Department. I'm the East Area Rapist, the caller said then began laughing into the phone. The second call would be a repeat of the first. A third call. I'm the East Area Rapist and I have my next victim already stalked. You guys can't catch me, the caller said. Then he continued laughing and hung up the phone. Those three calls were made to the Sacramento Sheriff's Department between 4.15 and 5 p.m. on March 18th. The ear was taunting police and would eventually strike that evening for the 15th time and the fourth time in Rancho Cordova. An opportunity to possibly catch the perp unfolded that evening around 9.30 p.m. A 15-year-old girl who was home alone watching TV looked out the window across the street. She saw a man that she did not recognize walking across her neighbor's front yard and into their backyard. She was so scared that she locked all of her doors and windows, closed the blinds, and then she returned to watching TV. She never called to report what had happened. An hour after the 15-year-old saw the creepy man, her 16-year-old neighbor arrived home after a shift at the local KFC. Her parents were leaving town for a few days, so she was going to spend the night with a friend. She picked up the phone and began dialing her friend's phone number when a whisper came upon her from behind. Don't scream or I'll kill you. Don't look at me or I'll kill you. As she turned around, the ear was behind her wearing a ski mask, holding a green hatchet high above his head, aimed straight for the teenager's face. The staples of the ear attacks continued, binding, blindfolding, leaving the room, ransacking, returning to check on the victim, eating, leaving the house and coming back inside, lotioning himself, the usual stuff. He tormented the victim this time by clicking a pair of scissors near her face each time he taught he walked by. He always seemed to get off more on tormenting his victims than the rape itself. A knock at the front door would spook the ear to run out of the home and hop a fence in the backyard. A green-handled hatchet was found on the backyard fence. Two empty Dr. Pepper soda cans were found beside the garage. Two real estate signs for Castorus Realty were lying in the backyard. Reports from neighbors of the hang-up calls, prowling, and unrecognized vehicles were all present as usual. The description given by the victim was that he was a young male, 25 to 35, 5'9 to 5'10. He wore a dark, army green nylon jacket and the mask. He wore dark shoes with soft soles and no heels. When Shelby and Daly interviewed the victim a few days later, they brought some yearbooks from the 1970 to 1974 Cordova High and Folsom High Schools. The victim went through the yearbooks and came back to one photo in particular of a kid. She said it may not be him, but it looks similar. This led investigators to follow up on that POI. This kid matched the description very well. 5'10", 160 pounds, born in 1956, had sandy brown hair and all. His father was a tech sergeant assigned to the Mather Air Force Base. The suspect was often seen wearing military fatigues as he walked around Rancho Cordova. Shelby interviewed his teachers and looked up his school records, which showed that he had transferred to Folsom High as his grades were suffering. They went from A's and B's to F's. He even failed phys ed. 
He graduated in 1974 and joined the Marines, only to be kicked out a few months later. Investigators took the victim to the gas station where he worked and had her sit in the car and study him while they pumped gas. In the time it took to fill the tank, she could not ID him. Nothing happened with the suspect. However, he was arrested in 1990 by the Sacramento Sheriff's Department for rape and sex perversion. He ultimately died at the age of 54 from pancreatic cancer. So one thing to note in this series here, you know, we mentioned something about real estate signs. And I don't know if we've touched on this very much yet, but, you know, police did have a suspicion about this particular individual and real estate. They weren't sure if he was working in real estate or whatever, or if he was striking homes that were near other homes that were for sale, because frequently they would find homes near the actual attack sites, they were for sale, and they would have a real estate sign in their yard. So they were initially, you know, kind of looking at this as an angle that they might need to pursue, you know, in the future, but they didn't really have any connections to it or anything for sure. But they noticed there was a lot of, you know, occurrences where there was either new construction, a home for sale, you know, and those kinds of things in the area. What do you make of the real estate signs and houses for sale close by? Are are you presuming that maybe this person was casing victims and casing homes by doing tours of homes for sale that were close to the attacks or is that what and that's what law enforcement thought as part of their whole you know thought process was that you know he potentially would go to these homes that were for sale or use these homes that were for sale as a way to kind of like go hide somewhere over there stake out the neighborhood um and he may have i i don't really know uh it is coincidental you know he's there a lot it's it's really hard to say i mean at this point i don't put a whole lot of stock in it i think that i mean you're in california it's kind of a growing community you know i'm assuming there's probably a lot of homes for sale so i think you're more probably more likely than not to run into a home for sale you know what i mean like i just feel like they're probably pretty common i mean they're common around where i'm at now so common enough that i would say you could probably come across a frequent amount of them and not necessarily have anything to do with it. You know what I mean? Right. No, I kind of agree. I don't know that there's much there. What do you think about, I thought it was a pretty good idea by law enforcement to, to bring out the yearbooks and try to start going through based on what they know of the age of the kid. They tried to, to place the, the area high schools in that year that he possibly graduated as a potential lineup. Oh, I thought that was super smart. I thought it was really interesting. You know, she got a good look at the guy. Why not go through the yearbooks, see if you can figure it out. If nothing else, you know, the fact that she points out a certain looking individual, it might give you an idea of what the guy looks like then, you know, pretty good idea. You know, I think that's pretty fascinating to to do that. Um, the problem is they don't know for sure what his age is. You know, everyone's just giving it an estimate. So you could have an older person who looks young. And so this person could have graduated, you know, in 1969 instead of 1974. And that's a huge difference, you know. So I thought it was really smart, though. But again, the problem is you just don't know for sure his age. But everyone seems to think he's pretty young. I don't know. I mean, I wouldn't have been opposed to them bringing in your books all the way back to like 1965 and say, hey, go through these and pick out a few people that you think look similar enough to this guy. And we'll start investigating based on that because, you know, it seems like this guy knows the area well enough and he's always in town. So he must have gone to school here and he seems pretty young. So odds are we might find him that way. That would have been interesting. I wonder if they would have actually come up with anything had they gone that route where they decided to go back in time a little bit further or, you know what I mean? They may have. And at the very least, like you said, at least they're getting a better idea of kind of what this person looks like. Something, an actual photo of somebody that looks close to compare their composites to, to make sure that they're, you know, still on the right track. Yeah, absolutely. I want to read the Sacramento Bee article that comes out in the paper prior to um, the next attack. Now, keep in mind, at this time, there were some attacks attributed to the ear that later are removed. So the count of that you might hear or the numbers in this one might be a little bit off. So, you know, just bear with me as I read through this, but this is taken from the Sacramento Bee. The title is 18th Rape Victim in the East Area. The East Area Rapist early today attacked his 18th victim, a 19-year-old woman who was raped in her home near Madison and Manzanita Avenues. The woman was assaulted between 2.30 and 4 a.m. and called Sacramento County Sheriff's Officers shortly afterwards, said spokesman Bill Miller. Miller would not otherwise detail the early morning rape. 
It's the same M.O. as the others, he said. The rapist forced his way into the woman's house, but Miller refused to say what kind of force was used or where the entry was made. In the other 17 rapes attributed to the East Area Rapist since October of 1975, the victims have been attacked between 10.45 p.m. and 6.45 a.m. by a masked or hooded man who forced his way into their homes. The rapist has tied and gagged his victims before sexually assaulting them. He has never attacked while there was a man in the home, although he has raped some of his victims with children present. The women have ranged in age from 16 to the late 30s. Six of the rapes have occurred in a relatively small area between Folsom Boulevard and the American River, north of Watt Avenue. All have been in the Carmichael, Glenbrook, Del Deo, and Rancho Cordova areas. The rapist has been described as 25 to 35 years old, white, between 5 foot 8 and 6 feet tall, clean-shaven, with dark, neatly cut hair. After this morning's rape, sheriff's officers in the area stopped a car nearby and took the driver to the headquarters for questioning. After a lengthy investigation, they released him. Attack number 16. April 2nd, 1977, Orangevale. A victim and her boyfriend were asleep in her bed, while her two children around 7 and 8 years old were asleep in their rooms. They had returned home late from a drive-in movie, and the children were put to bed around 1.30 a.m. A woman awoke with a flashlight beam directly in her face. She saw a man wearing a white ski mask with only holes for the eyes. He whispered to her, Don't make a sound. You see this gun? She replied, Yes. He ordered her to wake up her boyfriend, to which she complied. Stop. Don't move. Lay on your stomachs. I have a 45 with 14 shots and two clips. I want your money. Exactly where is your wallet? If you don't tell me the truth, I'll kill you. Don't make any sudden moves. Lay still, or I'll kill you like I did those people in Bakersfield. The boyfriend told the intruder that his wallet was in his pants on the floor. He ordered the boyfriend to roll over onto his stomach and put his hands behind his back and told him that he would be out of here in a few minutes. He looked at the female. You, tie your husband up. The victim asked what she was supposed to tie him with, to which the ear aimed his flashlight to the edge of the bed, illuminating a set of neatly laid out shoelaces. The boyfriend told his girlfriend to do what, what he says, and the ear growled at him to shut up and not talk. The ear walked over and grabbed his pants off the floor, then approached the boyfriend and put the gun to his head. Don't look up. If you see me, I'll have to kill both of you. He then started jangling the pants. The victims could hear coins clanging around. After I take the money, I'm going down to my camp on the American River, the intruder said. He then tied the boyfriend's spines tighter. He tied the female's hands and then took her out of the room. I'm going to tie you up in the hallway so you don't so you can't untie each other, he said. The suspect pushed the woman to the living room with a sharp object poking her in the back. Lie down on your stomach, he demanded. He then bound her ankles, blindfolded her with a towel, and started rummaging through the kitchen. He returned asking, Where's your matches? The woman responded, I don't know, I don't smoke. The ear growled, You better not lie to me or I'll have to kill you. He placed a cup and saucer on her back and ordered her not to move. He told her, I'll hear you, and if I do, I'll come back and kill you. He then returned to the master bedroom, where he placed a cup and saucer on the back of the male victim, stating that if he heard the dishes rattle, he'd hear it, and he'd come back there and kill him. He then went back to the kitchen. It was silent. The female thought he had left, but then shortly after she noticed what was a candlelight shining through her blindfold. I'm going to get your purse out of your car, he growled. He went into the garage and came back. He removed the cup and saucer and sat on her hands, which were tied behind her back. The victim felt that he had no pants on. He then told her, hold my cock, be gentle with it. He worked his penis into her hands, and just like the other attacks, he then pulled her panties off and demanded to know if she had sex with her boyfriend that night. She lied to him, telling them that she had not. He then proceeded to perform oral sex on her. Little did he know that she did have sex with her boyfriend that night and had not cleaned up afterward. Next, he put high heels on her and proceeded to rape her. Make it good, and I'll leave you alone, he said. It fell silent for a moment, but it became apparent to her that he was in their kitchen eating their food. He was eating loudly enough that she became aware of it. He then returned again and raped her again. He then pulled her up and sat her in his lap while seated in a chair. Once he was done raping her there, he shoved her to the floor and retied her bindings on her ankles. Then it fell silent for a while. Their poodle caused her to jump as it came over to her side. Her boyfriend was calling to her, and he was able to make it over to her and unbind her. The ear left used chewing gum at the scene, and it was later used to find his blood type was A. The heater was unplugged, and the cord was cut to the TV. Again, the neighbors, when asked, reported several incidents of prowling up to two months before. The same description for age and height were given. Many neighbors reported strange phone calls as well. The one thing to note is 
that he never bothered the children who slept through the whole ordeal. The ear also referred to her boyfriend as husband during the attacks, which implies he didn't know the home as good as he usually does. This was also the first attack in Orangeville, which is a small community near the American River and east of Rancho Cordova. So I read to you the Sacramento Bee article before talking about this attack, which mentions he has not attacked a home where a man is present. The very next attack, a man is present. So clearly he's following his case in the news, and he took that as a challenge. So he's now changing his MO slightly, and he's attacked now with a man in the home. So when people thought that he couldn't do it, or wouldn't do it, he's now decided to give them the middle finger and move on and go ahead and escalate a little bit here. What do you make of that? It's definitely ballsy because like every attack to this point, like we said, it's always a a victim that's home with just children. You know, we've even mentioned that there's not any large animals or dogs present in a lot of these scenes. So with the boyfriend or the husband being there during the attack, it's incredibly brave on his part. Ballsy for sure. Yeah. I thought it was pretty interesting. Um, you know, the what do you make of the 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 whole mechanism he uses to as his alert system the uh the dishes and saucer on the on the victim's backs it made perfectly good sense to me you know you hear the dishes clanging around you know they're moving or trying to get up you know even if it's not falling a very far distance to the ground or whatever you hear that cup sliding around on that saucer you're going to hear the dishes clanging together so i don't want to give him any credit for being smart but, I mean, it was kind of ingenious way to, to keep track of them from moving around a lot. Um, I'll give him credit for being smart. I mean, if you can do what he's done to this point, being the Visalia ransacker, and then also this many attacks. I mean, he's a scum of the earth, but he, I mean, if you say he's not smart, you're just lying to yourself. Because, I mean, he commits all these attacks and he's not caught. So, I mean, he has to be doing something right. Most people get caught. Speaking of people who get caught... We were talking about the extra accounts that get credited to the ear. So Sacramento Bee was kind of inflating some of these attack numbers because they were lumping in other attacks at the time that they hadn't ruled out as ear attacks. One of them was Art Pinkton. So in that number I gave you, where I said this is attack number 18, but really it's attack number 16 when we go back in time and, you know, really account for these properly. You know, Art Pinkton and there was another one, and they were a little bit different. The MOs were a little different. You know, it wasn't quite the same, and uh, I'm not going to get into the details of those right now, but just know that those were accredited to the ear at the time. And so, um, you know, we had a handful of extra attacks that were accredited to him. You know, yeah, I thought this was, uh, you know, this was a fascinating, it's fascinating to see that, you know, the SAC B runs an article and like the very next attack after the article, boom, he's hitting with a male in the home. And that's not something to take lightly. I mean, it's not just the fact that it's a male, it's the fact that there's two people. Yeah. The whole family's home, you know, the boyfriend, the girlfriend, the kids, everybody's there. And yeah, incredibly, incredibly, like you said, it's a middle finger to the police department. Hey, I'm, I'm keeping tabs on what you guys are writing about me and here, take this. It's a, it's a definitely a turn in his MO for sure. Yeah. Uh, and we, I don't know if we talked about it either. What do you make of the um, phone calls to the police department? I mean, it's another middle finger to them, right? He's calling them saying, hey, hey, this is me. What are you going to do about it? I'm going to attack again. I've already got stuff lined up, and you guys can't catch me. Huge, huge middle finger. It wasn't like they could trace calls back then, right? I don't know. Well, maybe they could. They just... could a little bit, but it was a lot harder to do. Like, you had to be, essentially, you had to know it was coming, right? Like, it's not like you could just go back in time and go, okay, it came from here. No, you had to, like, know that you were going to get the phone call. So they would, like... You know, they would set up like um, tracers on victims' phones because he tended to call them several times, you know. And then you had to stay on the line with them for so long and, and this and that. Stuff he was well aware of, you know. He knew. He was smart enough to know that. Yeah, but like he's getting, he's getting brave, that's for sure. Calling them, taunting them, reading the paper, going directly against what they've written to this point without the guy being in the house. So... He's th he's definitely thumbing his nose at them at this point. That's right. Well, I think that's a good place to leave this. Until next time, we'll pick up again with part five. Stay safe. <laughs>